in heaven, maker of heaven and earth and all that's in it. Lord, we are not worthy to stand in your presence because of our sin, because you are holy. But yet, because of your grace and mercy and love for us, Lord, you have accepted us, you've redeemed us, and made us your children by grace. Today, Lord, we pray that your spirit would come upon us in full measure. Lord, if there's anything in us that you find displeasing, we invite you to convict us, to move us, and that we would leave more like Jesus Christ, more focused on eternity, and with a greater care and love for the lost who are in desperate need of forgiveness and knowing you. So, Lord, work in us, Lord, that we might be your servants and good servants. And these things we pray in the name of our precious Lord Jesus. Amen. You can say amen. It's okay. So, you say, who's the guy who dresses funny? Yes, I'm a friend of Israel, Gomez, and uh, coming in. Uh, my name is Kevin Lewis. I'm a professor of uh, theology and law in the Christian Apologetics Program at Biola University. Uh, I've been teaching there for uh, since Moses taught Old Testament there. I uh, uh, was one of uh, Israel's seminary professors way back when. And uh, he asked me to come out today and uh, kind of give you guys a little bit of a chat. He says, you know, preach on whatever you want to preach on. So I'm going to preach on one of my favorite topics, the Bible, okay, that we'll, uh, we'll focus on that. But a um, little bit of background, so you can kind of, when I, you know, see the emphases I'm doing, uh, I'm, like I said, I'm a professor of theology and law, but what that really means is, first and foremost, everything in God's church depends on the Bible. Because here's something, we, if you don't get this stuff, this is the time to reevaluate. Because I'll tell you this, if, if you're stuck in your Christian life, you don't think you're growing in your Christian life, then you've got to ask yourself why. Because if you're hearing what you, things that are true and you're not considering them and repenting and changing your mind, you're not going to grow. So this is the time that, look, if you know that's true, I need to do this, choose this day whom you will serve. That really is the, the idea. And to grow in the grace and knowledge of God is a life of constant repentance not just from sin, because you love holiness, but remember the word repent means to change your mind. And wh what's it all about in the Christian life? You need to change your mind enough to get saved, and that means having on the helmet of salvation, your diaper, and getting your first bottle of milk, right? But then you're supposed to put on the armor of God. Why? Because it's all about truth versus lies. So this is why, as we're going to talk a little bit today, uh, look at the warnings in the Bible on the issue of lies, the, the, the false prophets, the, the warnings to exercise discernment, because, because again, how did, how did the fall of all humanity start? How did the misery, how did the absolute you know, evil in the world start? It started with a lie. And if you don't love the truth, you will be subject to the lies for the rest of eternity, the effects of the lies. So. This is why it behooves us always to really seriously think about, look, do I know what truth is? Do I love truth? Do I seek truth? So what I've done for my whole career is I just start with, you know, and you can turn in your Bibles, uh, you know, uh, I use the New American Standard because that's the one the Apostle Paul used, but uh, not really. Don't take notes on that. Apostle, no, Apostle Paul actually used the King James Bible. You can ask the uh, King James folks. So, well, here's the kind of thing that, uh, yes, and I, I have two kids, 20, 22. They're, you know, raised in my, uh, you know, my hand-waving household on everything. But why? Because, look, I've, 
if you think this stuff is true, there's a couple of really foundational things you need to think about and say, you know what, do I really believe this? Because if I do, it is going to govern how I act every moment of every day, if I believe it. And number one, does God exist? Now, I'll tell you, there are a lot of Christians who say God exists, but live as functional atheists, okay? Because you don't live as if there really is an eternal, righteous, holy being that made us out of nothing and to whom we owe everything and on which we're dependent for everything. You believe that, <laughs> and you think, God, okay, you're going to be turned into God saying, you know, which, by the way, everybody does know that. Why? Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And everybody in the world has some sense of guilt that they're trying to deal with. And I'll tell you that this is why my background, uh, we'll get into that in a minute, but we start with, you know, does God exist? Is there a moral law? Do you believe that you violated it? And I'll tell you, everybody does because everybody fears death unless you know you've been forgiven by this God of holiness. In fact, you know, where I teach, I mean, I, again, I teach in the Christian apologetics program at Biola, science and religion program, the seminary. Why? Because the Bible says that we're not just supposed to teach the Bible, which, which that's what we call our positive theology, our ideas about God. Titus 1.9 says, if you're going to be a leader in God's church, quote, you need to be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Why? Because Many, many, many false prophets have gone out and deceived people to take you away from the true and the living God, to have you believe lies, to follow the lies, and end up separated from God from all eternity, and end up with your guilt, your shame, your hopelessness for all eternity. The devil hates us, the world hates us, the false prophets hate us, uh, you know, you can fill in the blank on these other things. So, that's why I focus my whole life. Titus 1.9, exhort in sound doctrine, refute those who contradict. And that means, and we'll see that, I mean, from the beginning, there have been false prophets in the church. So what do I specialize in? First and foremost, Bible. Primarily, I am a systematic theologian, which says, what does the entire Bible have to say about any given topic? Why? Because if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. But also, my specialty areas are general Christian apologetics, I teach courses in that. How do you prove God exists? How do you prove the Bible's reliable? How do you prove miracles happen? How do you prove Christ rose from the dead? Okay? How do you prove disco is evil? Okay? Right? You know, okay. Very important things like that. <clears throat> right? uh, I also teach all these areas of general what's called heresiology because if, if you're going to know the truth, you've got to be able to contrast it with error. Again, we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute, that we're warned about that. Okay, because again, if you follow the lie, you're, again, it doesn't matter how sincere you are, you will be separated from God for all eternity. I teach uh, in the area of cult, uh, American religious cults. I teach a class called Cults, cults of America, a uh, class called Demonology and the Occult. Okay? Why? Because, you know, again, there really are witches, neo-pagans, ceremonial magicians, you know, people who have gone back to the old ways of many gods and the magical practices of trying to, uh, what, what is, again, condemned in 1 Samuel, rebellion is of the sin of witchcraft. Because what that's all about is, why do you want to seek magical powers, divination, spells, and all that? It's because you want to be your own god. Because if I can get enough power and knowledge, it's my kingdom come and my will be done, 
on earth as it is in heaven, and I don't have to recognize the one who made heaven and earth and the one to whom we're really subject. And all that to say is, so again, it's all of these areas, you know, demonology, the occult. I have a background, I have a bachelor's degree in comparative religion, so we teach in world religions. Why? Because that fulfills Titus 1.9, exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. Okay? Finally, yeah, I do have a law degree. I'm a practicing attorney. I'm also a law professor, a theology professor, law professor. Why? Because guess what? The world hates us. Not only, do, you know, worlds, this, that, but, you know, uh, the fact is, is that, yeah, the whole area of, you know, yeah, the government, you got to remember up until you get something like free exercise, uh, you know, Satan, you know, has its headquarters in most world, uh, you know, world governments, right? And what do they do by, by the, before you got free exercise and something like that? They killed Christians, unless the Christians were in charge of government. That's just basic history 101. So as I tell my students, it all starts out well with Bible and theology, and then it goes downhill from that. Cults, heretics, demons, and then lawyers, right, all the way on the bottom. So, so that's the kind of thing where, uh, again, so... That, that's why my emphasis is this. Here's what I really believe, and I hope you believe it too. You turn to the end of the Bible, and you think about things like, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There's only one God, and he says, be holy, for I am holy. Okay? But then you get to the end. So here's, here's the question. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, it says, And I saw a great white throne, and from him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away. And there was no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. How do you get your name written in the book of life? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, grounded ultimately our beliefs in Scripture alone. Right? Jesus himself said, look, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And this is why it is so easy to get out of focus on that. You do, you think about your journey that you're on as a Christian. Think about any journey. You, you go on a 10,000-mile journey. What if your compass is one degree off? How far off are you going to be at the end if you're, you, you start off one degree off? You're going to be miles and miles and miles away. Same thing ideologically. The, the, the Satan, demons, uh, think about how long angels have been around. I teach whole courses on demonology and angelology. But I'll give you this. Given a young earth creationist view, and let's say the creation is only, 20, you know, maximum 20,000 years old, okay? Um, the angels were around from the time God laid the foundation of the earth. Job 38, verse 7 says, the sons of God shouted for joy when God laid the foundations of the earth. Now think of the worst criminal that you've ever known in your life or thought about, Okay? And how old are they, 50 years old, 60 years old? Think about a criminal. Evil people have had 20,000-plus years to think about how to do evil, how to con you, how to tell lies. They're very sophisticated, okay? So this is why, you know, and, and I say this because we should be alarmed. Hopefully, 
you, and again, I believe this, that Jesus is the only way. People not in Christ will go to this horrible, horrible place called the lake of fire. Right now, people are miserable with shame, guilt, hopelessness. And you know what? I actually claim to be a Christian. I claim to love these people. I claim to, to, to do this. So what does that mean? It means I, think, I get up every day and I go through this list. Do I really believe this stuff? Yes. So what am I going to do today? Snatch people from the fire. I'm telling myself that I, th these are people walking towards the cliff and about to fall off. And if I'm not running to them, trying to pull them back, trying to change their bad ideas, what does that say about me? So this is why, yeah, my kids say, yeah, I run around screaming with my hands in the air all the time about everything. But yeah, because I believe this stuff. And it's not just true. Th this is crisis mode for us. So this is why, I don't just say this for you, I do this for me every day. If I really believe this stuff, I'm going to act accordingly because I do catch myself getting distracted. And I need to run myself through this grid. So this is why when we think about these warnings and the warning passages, I, again, th there's a ton of stuff I, I, I mean I could tell you about today, but the, the gist of the message today is discernment. Okay? How to be discerning. How do you discern truth from falsehood? How do you discern good from evil? Why? Because I will tell you this, if you read your Bible carefully, you will find out that the greatest enemies of the Christian faith are always within the church. They're not the ones outside the church. You know, the church doesn't fall and say, you know what, you know, Islam sounds pretty good. I think we're going to change our church to being Muslim, okay? It doesn't fall by saying, you know, I think our church is going to change and be Hindu now, okay? Or fill in the blank. You know, we're going to become the great atheist church now. What happens is, all the time since the fall, false prophets come, what? In the name of the true and the living God, in the form of leadership, saying, hey, I'm here representing God and his word, and then they do what? They tell a different story in the name of God. And the problem is, is that the folks who are not trained or who haven't fallen for their, well, I've got a triple portion anointing, so I'm speaking for, really? Well, yeah, and then you believe everything they claim to say. Or, you know, somehow, you know, through the work of the devil, you know, they make some supernatural thing occur. Well, it's supernatural, it must be from God. And this is what goes on, has, has been going on since the fall of human beings. And a couple of things here before we kind of narrow it down, but turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 13. And again, you look at the warnings here. I mean, beginning, middle, end of Scripture. Deuteronomy 13, think about this. God is speaking to the people of Israel, his people. And what does he say? Deuteronomy 13, 1, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the, which, by the way, sign or wonder, that's technical speak for a miracle, okay? A supernatural work. If a prophet or dreamer of dream arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign of the wonder comes true, concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after God, other gods, whom you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. You shall follow the Lord. God, fear him. You shall keep his commandments and listen to his voice and serve him and cling to him. Verse 5, 
Um, I'll tell you, the false prophets today are really pleased they're not living in ancient Israel, right? Because what's the penalty for counseling rebellion against the true and the living God, for sedition, for treason, for leading people to spiritual murder, that they don't have spiritual life? Verse 5, I'll summarize it for you. Take them out and have a rock party with them, right? That's what it means. But you think about that, that's harsh. No, eternal conscious punishment in the lake of fire is harsh. The people who come to God's people and tell lies so that they will be separated from God for all eternity, that's literally spiritual murder that they're committing. Now, if you, that's only if you believe there really is one true God, one way, and eternal conscious punishment. If you don't believe that, this seems excessive. Okay? So this is why you've got to really think about this stuff. Is there really eternal separation from God and misery and torment? Be gone. Okay, good. So... That happens sometimes. So teach a class on demonology and the occult. You hear this stuff. You have to be aware of these things that go on. So, all right. So, so again, beginning of the Bible, we're being warned about these things. How about this? At the end of the Bible, uh, look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And just, just, just take a look at this and say, okay, end of the age now, Okay. 2 Thessalonians 2, we're warned Antichrist is coming at the end of the age. What does it say, verse 9, about the Antichrist? The one who is coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. Get that did not receive a love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. These are the warnings we get all through the Bible, beginning of the Bible, end of the age. The Antichrist himself is going to be coming and displaying all sorts of supernatural miracles. Okay? But what happens? For the people who don't have a love of the truth, okay, that you fall for the latest con man, energized by Satan, who somehow is able to do something supernatural, you know what? If you don't test these things and hold on to what is true, what does God say? He's going to allow you your, quote, free choice not to believe the truth. You've got to love it. You've got to want it. Okay, so now we're going to ask the Pontius Pilate question. What is truth, right? So, all right, what is truth? Hopefully at some point in your Christian life, you under, you, someone has explained what the truth is, what the nature of truth is. I'll tell you what it's not. Let's start with that. It's not whatever your preference is. Okay? It's not in academic circles and what we call a worldview of atheistic physicalism or of some sort of moral relativism or, we'll say this, knowledge or epistemological relativism. It's not whatever makes sense in some coherent theory that I have, okay? In other words, you know, I made something up and it somehow logically makes sense. No, truth in the Bible, remember Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth in the biblical term is aletheia. It means what's real, what's genuine, okay? What does that mean practically? Uh, in, again, the world of Christian academia, we would call it the correspondence theory of truth. The correspondence theory of truth. And we say this, 
If I have an idea about something, okay, and in my idea actually corresponds exactly to this mind-independent reality of existence, I say that my idea is true, okay? So the idea is, if your thoughts, ideas, correspond to reality, the mind-independent world, we say they're true. If they don't, they're false. That's what truth is. So we think about the knowing the truth, because think about these, these concepts. I mean, all throughout the Bible, the truth, the truth, the truth, the truth. You heard that, right? Okay, good. You know, uh, it's like when I hear voices outside the room, too. I have to check with all of you, make sure it's going on okay. So, all right, so truth. Um, John 8, 32, know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Think about the implication of that, that we're warned about, all right? I mean, Jesus says, what, if you, if you believe lies, you're in bondage to them. You're following a false path of death and guilt and shame and destruction. And you're not going to get out of that unless you know the truth about who God really is, about who you really are, about who your what your obligations to God really are. So, so that'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. How about this? Anyone want to grow in holiness and sanctification? Anybody here? All, I know all the hands are up metaphorically. Okay, good. But, you know, you're holding coffee and a Bible in the other hand, so, you know, I get it. Yeah, right? Let me see, because sin is bad, right? And God wants me to be holy, so yeah. But what does Jesus say in his high priestly prayer in John 17? Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. How about the Apostle Paul? In Philippians 4, his grocery his grocery list on what to think on. He starts out in the list. This is what whatsoever is true. This is your homework assignment, right? Philippians 4:8. And then after that, he gives a list of things, whatever is lovely, good repute, anything excellent or worthy of praise. Why is true first in the list? Because you can have false views of what's lovely, good repute, good repute, excellence, worthy of praise. Just like you think about worship, you can have false worship. You can have false forms of evangelism. You can have false ideas of God, Christ, salvation. So this is why you look at 2 Thessalonians 2, I mean, just nails it. Do you have a love of the truth so as to be saved? And I say this because what is, what is that going to translate into practically for you? It means that if you have a love of the truth, hopefully what you've got with that is what we'd call intellectual humility. And this is the good part about having assurance of salvation, is you can just admit you're wrong and feel good about it because <laughs> you know God already loves you and God has already paid the price for you and, 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 and you're a child of God, so God, fix me. You're right, I messed up. But see, if you don't believe that, then you're going to be reticent to do what? To confess your sins, to confess your ignorance, to change your mind, okay? So when you think about it, that intellectual humility starts with a love of the truth, but also a comfort on the fact that, yeah, I know I'm a child of God, and you know, God, I want to grow. So confront me. Confront my ideas, and man, show me where I'm wrong, because I want to be right. And that's why I tell anybody, look, convince me what I believe is wrong, I'm, I'll change my mind. Because I do not want to be found to believe something that is against the word of God. So, so, so that's the question is, look, choose this day whom you will serve. If you love the truth, if you seek the truth, if you are willing 
all the time. So, you know, I was just convinced of that. By the way, and if you're not used to doing that, talk yourself through the first round, okay, and the second round. Like, you know, I mean, until it becomes automatic. Because, say, okay, God, you just told me. I mean, you don't say it out loud, okay, but, uh, you know, because you might bother the people around you. But say, you know, okay, God, you know, I was just convinced that, you know, if something was true, and I'm believing something that's not true. So, God, you know, I'm, help ch I'm changing my mind. I, I, this new thing I, I believe is true, and help me to have a conviction for that, that it's true. Now, until you get to the point where that happens automatically, it doesn't, because how many people you know have been sitting in church for 30, 40 years and do this, and it goes in one ear and out the other, because it doesn't filter through that mechanism of saying, yes, Lord, that's true, and it, it passed through my intellect, now it's going to pass through my will, and I'm making a choice to reject the old idea and adopt the new idea. Unless you do that, you will not change as a Christian. You will not grow in sanctification. Because, again, sanctification is getting rid of the old sin and growing in holiness. You only do that by continuously confronting and changing your mind. So truth, 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 truth. Uh, so it, to sort of the last few minutes here, I want to look at a, a key passage that sort of wraps this up. Um, look at Matthew 7, 15 to 23. And here um, in Matthew 7, this is significant because it's the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and what we see is a warning by Jesus Christ himself, which, by the way, I mean, virtually every time we look in the Scripture, there's warning, warning, warning. The Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, gave a warning, okay? Uh, I mean, you look at uh, 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 8. Paul says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is about to judge the living and the dead. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not put up with sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to miss. But you watch in all things, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight, I finished the course, I've kept the faith. Therefore is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, but not only to me, but to all who love his appearing. So the question to you is, it's a fight against lies. Have, are you fighting the good fight and finishing the course? Can you say with Paul, I've kept the faith? Finish well in your Christian life. That's the warning. Paul's about to die being put to death by Nero in a dungeon in the Mamertine prison. What does he do? Warn us. In Acts 20, you, you, here's your homework assignment. He spent three years planning a church in Ephesus. His farewell address to the Ephesian elders, starting about verse 26, he says, I'm leaving now, to paraphrase, and he says, but false prophets are going to come in among you, not sparing the flock. Be on alert, knowing that night and day for three years I warned you about this. So we always come in and do a good work. We preach the gospel, we raise this up, and then the devil, the false prophet, and the world creeps in and starts changing it to tear us away from God. Jesus Christ himself said exactly the same thing. Uh, he ends with his Sermon on the Mount. And I, I will say this, if you look at this passage, it starts in verse 13, 
This is actually, you want to think about this, a scary passage for Christians. And here's why. I'm going to read the passage, and we'll finish with this. It says, verse, verse 15, Beware the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Now, a couple of things here. Why do the false prophets have to come in sheep's clothing? Because if they came in their wolf's suit, we'd detect them. So what does that mean? It means that the false prophets have to come looking like real Christians. And what does that mean? They use all our same vocabulary. They talk about the Trinity. They talk about Christ. They talk about salvation. They talk about atonement. They talk about all these things, but they use the exact same words we use but have a completely different dictionary. But the problem is someone comes and stands in a place like this, a place of teaching authority, or, you know, my lectern, you know, at Talbot, you know, as, as a grad professor, and guess what? Just about everybody is going to give you the benefit of the doubt if you're placed in that place of teaching authority. So, well, I didn't really get what he said, it sounded off, but gosh, you know, he's the pastor or he's the professor or something. And this is how you lead people astray. So this is why we're really, really careful. And by the way, I've, I've checked Israel, he seems to be okay over here, so we'll, uh, you know, check by scripture. Now, here's the scary part now. Th this talk about false prophets and fruits, just ask yourself, what's the fruit of a false prophet? Very simple, verse 21 to 23, false disciples are the fruit of a false prophet. You, we're going to read verse 21 to 23, and you need to read this. Is these are people who think they're Christians, and they're not. 21 to 23, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, on that day means the eschatological day and the return of Christ when you have to give an account for your life. On that day, they'll say, well, on that day, did we not prophesy in your name? Your name cast out demons? Your name performed many miracles? And I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Look at what's going on here from their own perspectives. Look what we did for you. What are they offering to Christ? Exactly what Cain offered to God, the fruit of his own work. Instead of saying, you know, Lord, I, I have nothing to offer you. I'm a sinner. I, I've done nothing. In fact, I deserve hell. All I can say is have mercy on me, a sinner. Not look at what, hey, move over. Look at what I did for you, right? <laughs> so I'm the fourth member of the Trinity now. Yeah, no, you're not. So... That, that's the warning, is that if you don't pay attention to the, false, the, the, the falsehoods, you'll get trapped by the truth. Now, in the last few minutes, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm going to summarize the entire Bible for you, okay, in a systematic, theological way, okay? This answers the question, why is Jesus Christ the only way of salvation? Why is it salvation can't be by works and must be by grace? All those questions that, you know, we're reading the Bible through and through. But I'll tell you this, if you change what salvation is, 
you're going to change atonement, you're going to change the nature of the Savior, and ultimately you're going to change the nature of God. Okay? What is salvation in Christianity? Salvation is forgiveness and reconciliation of a broken relationship with God. That's it. It is not becoming a God. Sorry, Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. Okay? It's not realizing you're God when you forgot you were God. Sorry, Hindus. Okay? It's not going out of existence. It's not nihilism, right? It's not merely escaping God's cosmic jail so you can continue to do whatever you want. Okay, that's modern Judaism, Islam, Unitarianism. You can go down the list. Now, salvation in Christianity is one thing. It's forgiveness and reconciliation of this broken personal relationship we have with God so we can have an active, loving fellowship with our Heavenly Father. Not just acknowledge that God exists, but that actually God lives in us through the Holy Spirit. And by the way, yeah, we expect if we're baptized in the Spirit, he'd talk to us once in a while as our Heavenly Father. It's not just a one-way conversation. Now, I would submit to you that you want to understand the Bible? How do you reconcile any broken relationship that you have? And guess what? God does it exactly the same way. And here's how. Let's start with all the way back to eternity and ask this question, what has the triune God been doing for all eternity? Answer, been having an intimate, loving, righteous fellowship, koinonia, shalom, peace, love to each other, and blessed by it, happiness because of that, eternal blessedness. Why did God make us in his image? Thought, haven't thought about that. Answer, so that we could mirror in a very limited way that blessed intertrinitarian fellowship based on righteousness and love. When we're unfallen, when we're not sinful, all of you know what you want in life. You want people to love you and to love others and to treat you righteously and to be happy in that relationship. That's what God wired us to be, made in his image. But what's the problem? And you know what the problem is, sin. Is that we don't treat other people righteously. We dishonor them. We treat them in dishonoring ways, mean ways, shameful ways. And what do we do? We break the loving, righteous relationship. We break the peace. We break the shalom. Now I'm going to give you an instance here on why salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, okay? Because, by the way, this is how you're going to reconcile your broken marriages, your broken friendships, and everything else. Here's how to do it. I'm going to give you an illustration here and then analogize to what God's doing. Um, let's say, pure hypothetical, that I have been the perfect sinless husband for three decades to my wife. Don't laugh, okay? So... God just buzzed me. No, that's, don't tell lies in church. Okay, so, all right. So, but let's just say that's true as a hypothetical. And my wife and I have just had the absolute blessed, perfect marriage. And then I come home one day and I say, I just, I'm in a bad mood. I walk in, I slap my wife. I say, you know, you're stupid, ugly, your cooking's bad. I've never loved you. You know, just, just you're just a troll. Go back to your desk. And I go in my office and slam the door. 
I guarantee you at that point there is no more eHarmony.com, 29 dimensions of compatibility anymore. Why? Because I have sinned and broken the shalom with my wife. Now, if I'm ever going to get that, that, that fellowship back, that, that relationship back, what has to take place? Very simple. My wife, as the offended party, has to do one thing. And that is be willing to bear the harm to the relationship that I caused and not hold it against me. Say, what is that? She's going to bear the penalty or the harm for the destruction of the relationship that I caused. In other words, that's, being, that's your willingness to forgive. She has every right not to have fellowship with me because I'm a rude, sinful, unrepentant man and husband. There is no... There is no fellowship with unrighteousness and righteousness. So, I mean, God, Habakkuk 1.13 says, God, his eyes are too pure to approve evil. He cannot look upon wickedness with favor, and you can't either, and I can't. You can't look upon that wickedness and say, oh, that's okay. No, it's not okay. It's wicked, okay? So, if I'm going to reconcile with my wife, the offended party, my wife, has to be willing to bear the harm, the penalty, and not hold it against me. Now, so now, how about works righteousness? How does that fit in? So now I go out, I take the trash out, I, you know, I, I drive through, I get dinner, you know, I go to my, you know, old lady down the street house, rake her leaves, right? And then I come home, slap my wife again and say, see all the good works I did? You got to take me back. How's that going to work? Still no eHarmony.com. Okay, um, how about this, okay? Now my next door neighbor goes out and rakes leaves and gives sandwiches to the poor and, you know, does all this, and then come knocks on our door. How you doing? You know, I just went out and did a billion good works. Now you two are reconciled. What? You have nothing to do with this tiff between me and my wife. Get off my lawn. Okay, good. Got to say that. All right, so, yeah, okay, yeah. He's, the third party is irrelevant to my sin against my wife, okay? So how am I going to reconcile with my wife? Can it be by my works? No, because I'm already supposed to be good and holy and righteous. I don't, I don't earn extra brownie points to pay for my sins. This is a broken personal relationship. So how do I get it back? Simple. I have to realize what I did was rude, evil, and wrong. I have to repent, I have to confess my sin, which means to be in agreement with the fact that I'm wrong and I need to be righteous. And what else do I have to know? Know of an offer of reconciliation, that my wife is actually willing to bear that harm and not hold it against me. And once I realized, wow, I was a jerk. There's a theological term from that. So it's a jerkosaurus maximus, okay? Yeah, so, and all I can do is what? Go to my wife and say, you know, honey, oh my. I don't know what came over me. I mean, I am so, so sorry. I mistreated you. I acknowledge that. And then all of a sudden, you know, she's willing to extinguish that penalty of separation and lack of relationship because she's borne the harm. And all, all I could do to get it back is repent, confess, and know of an offer of reconciliation. It's a gift to my wife to reconcile with me. There it is. And then now we have eHarmony.com. Uh, you know, now we're back to having a, a righteous fellowship, a loving fellowship again. No works on my part. So how does this work for God? 
Simple. God's the offended party in our sin, right? Just nod your head. Why, yes, yes it is. God's the offended party. We're the offending party. Is God holy? Yeah. Is he just? Yeah. I just said, can he ignore sin? No. So for God to be, as the book of Romans says, just and the justifier, that he actually punishes sin, I'll ask you this, what's the wages of sin? Death. Can God die as God? No. So what is, since God's the offended party, what does God have to do to actually pay the penalty for sin? God has to become a man without ceasing to be God. Merry Christmas. That's what the incarnation is about. What does God actually have to do as a God-man? Pay the death penalty for us, spiritually and physically. Fast forward, Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. He actually bears the real penalty for sin as the offended party through his human nature that he acquired in the incarnation without ceasing to be God. A God-man died on the cross and rose again from the dead. Thus he actually satisfied the penalty for sin. So what's left for us to do? By grace you have been saved through faith. Not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works. There's nothing you can do except want a relationship with God, repent, confess your sins, come back to God. So that's why, by the way, Christ is the only way of salvation because he's God and he's the offended party. No third party can come and pay that penalty. Only the offended party can. Every fa false gospel there has ever been distorts that picture of salvation and makes works righteousness or you name it. So this is why, you know, rejoice. God is offering a pardon to anyone who repent and believe, and he has never turned away anyone who has repented and come to him and asked for reconciliation. So if you believe that in closing, just start with, you know, you think about being missional. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. Just start with your own Jerusalem. I mean, or start with yourself. If you're not sure you're saved, and maybe this is the time to be sure. Then go out, how about your family members and your neighbors and the people at work? You don't need to go halfway across the world to go do ministry. How many people do you know now that you think aren't saved? A couple of dozen? Then you can go out from there. So this is why I, I just urge you, because yes, I believe this stuff, and I think there's an urgency here. And yes, I, I mean, Christ is the only way of salvation, and the false prophets distort that. So anyway, let's pray, and then uh, Israel will come up. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word.